0: Hello, and welcome to Obsessive Compulsive Gaming's general history series. In the last episode, we took a look through the earliest examples of electronic and computer games to find the first historical instance of a true video game. While they all provided an important view into the evolution of the medium, none of them were commercially available to the general public. So the next question we will pursue in this episode is where the industry part of the video game industry came into being. And for that, we will turn to the story of a man whose name you should know, but very likely do not. That man's name is Ralph Baer. Rudolf Heinrich Baer was born on March 8, 1922, in the German town of Pirmasens. Born into a Jewish family, Bayer was subject to the persecution of the Nazi regime that took power in Germany when he was only 11 years old. At age 14, he was ejected from his school due to his Jewish ancestry and forced to attend a segregated all-Jewish school as a result of the Nazi's ethnic supremacist Nuremberg Laws. In the fall of 1938, Bayer and his family managed to emigrate to the United States. Although the immigration quotas imposed by the United States at that time for Jewish immigration made available slots very scarce, the Bayer family's significant ties, family ties, in New York and Ralph's ability to speak English at the customs played a very large part in helping secure their escape from Nazi Germany, very shortly before the instigation of a national wave of massacres and assaults on German Jews, now known to history as Kristallnacht. Once in the United States, Baer took a job in a family member's factory, until one day he observed an advertisement that gave him the idea to obtain an education in radio repair which he then took a full-time job doing until the outbreak of World War II. In 1943, Baer was drafted into the United States Army, and thanks in part to his knowledge of and fluency in German, he served in the headquarters of Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower during the launching of the D-Day invasion. Upon his discharge from the Army and return to the United States in 1946, Baer once again continued his education by attending a small, early school called the American Television Institute of Technology thanks to the benefits of the GI bill while attending one of the earliest accredited schools in the field bear managed to emerge with one of the first bachelor degrees in television engineering for the next 10 years bear bounced between different jobs at different companies startups and defense contractors in 1958 he found himself taking a job at sanders associates a defense contractor, and the largest employer in New Hampshire, where he now lived. As Bayer documented in his own autobiographical account, he was sitting on a bus terminal in New York City on August 31, 1966, when an idea he had long forgotten resurfaced in his head. Back in the early 1950s, when working at a company called Laurel, designing a high-end television set. He had proposed adding some kind of interactive circuitry into the unit in order to make it stand out from other television sets at the time. Since the project was already behind schedule, his idea was shot down on the spot and never raised again, but the idea had been long simmering in the back of his mind. The television set was one of the most prolific technological inventions of the 20th century, and up until that point it had only been used for one purpose, to broadcast video images. Baer imagined that with some engineering know-how, he could make it do much more, and he set out to do just that. At this point in late 1966, Baer was not just an employee of Sanders Associates, but had become the head of the equipment design division at the company, giving him some resources at his disposal to put into ideas such as this, when he could find the funds and the time. The next day, Baer returned home to New Hampshire and wrote a four-page descriptive proposal for his idea to create an interactive television manipulation device and he had it noted signed and dated by a co-worker to establish a legal record of his invention in his proposal bayer described a device that will be connected to a television via its antenna connectors and output a radio frequency that the television could tune into on channel three or four this radio frequency would be focused and directly broadcast to the television via an adapter known as an RF modulator, or radio frequency modulator. Bayer even gave the video output device a special name. He called it Channel Let's Play, or Channel LP for short. With his idea in hand, Bayer used his position at Sanders Associates to allocate one of the technicians on his team to implement his schematics and create a working prototype of his idea. He selected a technician named Bob Tremblay, and the project was completed by that December in 1966. This prototype device was not given a name at the time, but retroactively would come to be known as TV Game Number One, since many more iterations were to follow. With this prototype in hand, Baer was able to approach Sanders' associate higher-ups and demonstrate it moving a line around a television screen. With this demonstration, his project was officially given the go-ahead and given a $2,500 budget, which would be just short of $20,000 in 2019. After several months of brainstorming ideas for what could be done with this device, Bayer recruited a Sanders engineer he knew named Bill Harrison to work on the project with him. Harrison began his work for Bayer in February of 1967. He was given a working space in a room in one of the farthest-flung branches of the Sanders campus, and only Harrison and Bear had the key to this room, in order to keep the development of the project top secret. However, Harrison was not set to exclusively work for Bayer, so he was often taken away from working on the television game project to work on larger, more important projects to Sanders' associates. While Harrison was called away to work on other projects, Bayer began brainstorming ideas for games together with another engineer named Bill Rush. Rush was known to be a very brilliant engineer with a knack for creative thinking and design. Around this time, Harrison returned again to resume work on the project and began assembling a hardware unit that would be capable of fulfilling Rush and Bayer's vision. Harrison set to work modifying the initial prototype Bear had in order to add color to the dot they had generated on the screen. This led him to create the first of the games Bayer had outlined in his original four-page proposal. Bear and Harrison played this first iteration of the game against one another on May 7, 1967. The game placed a single blue dot on the television screen, with a plastic overlay placed onto the screen, which added the picture of a bucket to the mix. The blue dot would be positioned to sit at the bottom of the bucket. The first player would repeatedly press the button on their control device to move this blue dot upwards, and effect filling the bucket with this blue water, while the second player would press their own controller button to push the water back down. A time limit was implemented on the game so that if the first player could not outpress the second player and raise their water over the bucket's edge, the water dot turned red, signaling that they had lost the game. In this very first playing of the game, Bayer lost to Harrison. Bayer then assigned Harrison to create a few of the other games he had drawn up in his initial proposal. After that, Harrison improved on the hardware again and implemented one of Bayer's new designs to make it possible for the device to create two separate dots on a television screen. With this, TV game number two was born. On May 10th, Bill Rush had created a formal outline for several different kinds of games that could be created for Bear's television game box. These included a car racing game, a baseball game, a chase game, a geography game, a shooting game, and several more. These games were all based on simply the manipulation of two dots on the screen. Harrison implemented some of these designs into new games for the TV game number two, and by May 25th had created the chase game that Rush described, in which one player attempts to catch and make contact with the other player's dot, much like a game of tag. Harrison also implemented Rush and Bear's idea for a shooting gallery game, this time by creating the first video game accessory peripheral ever made, a light gun. On Bear's instructions, Harrison ran out to a Sears department store and purchased a toy rifle resembling a Winchester. He then proceeded to scoop out all the internals of the toy gun and install circuits and a light sensor in the rifle housing. This peripheral was wired to the TV game number two box and used to play the first light gun game, allowing for player to shoot a dot on the screen and have it disappear when hit. By mid-June, Bayer was satisfied that they now had enough of a working product to demonstrate it to higher-ups at Sanders Associates and take it to the next step towards bringing the product to market. Bear demonstrated the TV game number two to the vice president of Sanders Associates as well as the entire board of directors. He showed off the chase game, the bucket filling game, the light gun shooting gallery, and several other variations they had created. While the executives were not wholly enthusiastic in understanding the project or its potential, they nevertheless gave Bear the permission and funding to go ahead with creating a marketable product. So that the company could either sell it to the general public itself or license it to another company that would do so. With this permission, Bear went back to the drawing board to redesign the TV game device to be a retail product that could sell for around $25 at that time, which is about $175 in 2019. This involved having Harrison remove some of the more advanced features they had built into the circuitry, such as the ability to generate dots with different colors. This scaled-down version became the TV game number three, however, it still wasn't able to meet Bear's price goal, instead coming in around $50, which would be around $360 in 2019. At this point, Bill Rush was added to the team as its third member alongside Bear and Harrison, and it was Rush's next contribution that would fit all the pieces into place. Rush suggested that they add a third dot to the game setup that would be controlled by the machine. This third dot added the necessary missing piece to create the most definitive game to emerge from the project, ping pong. With this suggestion, Harrison made the necessary changes to the hardware to generate a third pixel on the screen, and that became TV game number four. By November of 1967, Bayer, Rush, and Harrison had a fully functional TV game device that could play a decent version of ping pong, their chase game, and the light gun shooting gallery. Each game had their own controller. Naturally, the shooting gallery used the light gun, while the chase game had a pair of joysticks to move around the screen. And the ping pong game had a controller with three knobs on it. One knob on each side of the controller, and one on top. The two side knobs would control the vertical and horizontal movement of the player's dot, while the third knob on top would control the angle or pitch the player would put on the ball when they hit it. With the product complete and distilled down into its three most appealing activities, they now needed to find a company that would sell it. Initially, Bayer was very interested in pursuing companies in the infant cable industry. In the late 1960s, the cable industry was essentially just offering the same broadcasting that consumers could get for free over the air and simply offering it more reliably to those areas of the country that did not have proper reception. Bayer's idea was that cable companies could offer the TV game unit to sell their service with a unique feature. He imagined that cable companies could broadcast a high-quality image of a scene such as a tennis court onto television sets that the game's dots could then be superimposed over, rather than having to place a plastic overlay of a tennis court onto a TV screen. Bayer was in the process of pitching this concept to an interested cable company called Teleprompter in early 1968, but the onset effects of an economic recession that year in the United States economy delivered a financial gut punch to that company and caused them to back out of negotiations with Bayer and Sanders Associates. Meanwhile, Harrison was still at work tweaking and improving the TV game hardware, adding new games like Handball, which was Very similar to tennis, but instead of bouncing a ball back and forth across a net or a line, the player bounced it off a solid wall or a line on one side of the screen. He also added a game show quiz style game in which players chose the correct answers by using the light gun to point to one of the dots on the screen that was lined up with possible answers. However, the same economic downturn that affected Bayer's deal with the cable company also came home to roost at Sanders Associates so Harrison's work on TV Game number 5 came to a halt. Later that year in September 1968, Bear was able to get the project back on track by securing the necessary funding to bring Harrison back in to keep working on the project. They created two more iterations to try and tweak the hardware to perfection. This created the TV Game number 6 and the TV Game number 7, the last of which became known to the team as the Brown Box because Harrison had covered the device's exterior casing in brown wood-grain-patterned adhesive to make it appear like many other common electronic devices in that era. In fact, Harrison and Bear were still working on TV game number 8 when they had to halt development due to hitting their cost limits. Now they just needed to find a company that would produce the device. Throughout much of this later process, Bayer and his team were working in close cooperation with Sanders Associates patent attorney, Lou Ettlinger. Bayer recounts taking the brown box to the patent office to apply for patents on the device and many of its features. As he tells the story, within 15 minutes of hooking up and demonstrating the device, they had employees on every floor of the building peeking in and wanting to test drive the unit, giving Bayer a very encouraging sign that they had a possible hit product on their hands. It was on the suggestion of Ettlinger that Bayer began pitching the device to television companies as a new use for televisions that could stimulate new demand. Bayer talked to all the major television manufacturers in the United States at that time. General Electric, RCA, Zenith, Sylvania, Warwick, Motorola, and Magnavox. RCA was the first company to take a look at the device and Bayer demonstrated it to them in January of 1969 and began negotiating a possible licensing agreement between them and Sanders' associates. However, these negotiations broke down by the summer because of what Bayer called RCA's onerous terms for licensing the device. Fortunately for Bayer, one of the executives that had seen the demonstration of the brown box moved to Magnavox shortly after the negotiations with RCA fell through. From his new position at Magnavox, he encouraged his superiors to take a look at Bayer's device, and on July 17, 1969, his efforts paid off. At the very same time that American astronauts were on their way to the moon for the first time, Ralph Bayer was demonstrating the brown box to Magnavox's manager of product development and engineering. The manager was heavily impressed with the demonstration and started working through the necessary channels at Magnavox to begin negotiating with Sanders Associates to license the device for production and sale. Magnavox's higher-ups finally gave the approval to negotiate a contract in March of 1970, and by January 1971, an agreement was reached that was signed two months later. At this point, the duties of finishing the brown box hardware, and preparing to bring it to market, were in the hands of Magnavox and its engineers. Bayer and his team would only consult with the Magnavox technicians from time to time between March and September. Since their main task was to bring a marketable retail product to store shelves, they set about trimming any excess hardware from the original brown box design to bring the cost down. This included removing the circuitry for generating color backgrounds on the TV, which would have to be handled by plastic overlays for the screen. The only other major change would be an interesting one. The original brown box design included a bank of switches on the front of the device that could be switched up and down in different configurations in order to start the different games prearranged in the device's circuitry. Bayer's team had included a set of cards that fit onto the face of the unit and points out which switches to flip in order to start each game. Magnavox's engineers tossed this mechanism in favor of something more consumer-friendly and less complicated overall. Instead of flipping switches, they added a cartridge port to the front of the console's design. This port would allow users to insert a little circuit cartridge into the machine that would arrange the connections of the circuits in the machine to start the pre-arranged games. This way, each one of the cartridge cards could correspond to a different game program and could be inserted by the user when they wished to switch games. It is important to note that because of the way the console functioned, these were not cartridges in the sense that they are known today. They did not contain any programmable information that was fed to the computer. Instead, they were circuit boards that closed the internal circuitry in the machine in different ways to affect different game setups and different game logic for the players to interact with. But the design element certainly took the brown box a step away from the aesthetic of engineers and homebrew computer enthusiasts and towards the realm of consumer electronics. The device was also given a name that would certainly make it appear to be a marketable consumer device, the Odyssey. From here, Magnavox would prepare to bring the Odyssey to market in the fall of 1972. It unveiled the product to members of its distribution network at an event in Las Vegas that May, and from there took the product on a demonstration tour through each of its major metropolitan markets in the United States. It was on this tour that the two threads of our story intertwined for the first time. For while Ralph Bayer and the Odyssey brought the home video game console market into existence, This was not the only aspect of the industry that was emerging at this time. The arcade industry was also beginning in its own right, independently of Bayer and Magnavox. Their paths crossed at one of the Magnavox demonstration booths that summer. At Magnavox's Profit Caravan display at the Airport Marina Hotel in Burlingame, California, a visitor signed the guestbook and played the demonstration Odyssey machine with its ping-pong game. This interaction would cross-pollinate the nascent arcade industry with the soon-to-be home console market and light the spark that would create both industries almost simultaneously. That guest's name was Nolan Bushnell. Nolan K. Bushnell was born on February 5, 1943 in Ogden, Utah. His early life and upbringing were relatively normal for an American boy in the United States after World War II. He reportedly had a particular fascination in tinkering with electronic and mechanical devices, including television sets and radios. This played out in his choice of discipline when enrolling at Utah State University in 1961, where he chose to study engineering. While Bushnell was in college, many of his early inspirations were cast on him as he initially continued his job in appliance and television repair, and later took a job managing the arcade game section of the Lagoon Amusement Park in the summer of 1963. It was here that Bushnell became intimately familiar with the business of coin-operated entertainment, as he had a strong talent for playing the role of a carnival barker and enticing showgoers to pump coins into ball toss, weight guessing, bowling, and skee-ball attractions. Bushnell changed his academic interests first to business, then to economics, and then transferred to the University of Utah in 1964. He completed school in 1965 with a degree in electrical engineering. His initial hope was to work for the Walt Disney Corporation as an engineer that designed rides and attractions for the company's theme parks. However, since Disney had a policy not to hire recent graduates with no pre-existing experience, he was forced to look elsewhere as he moved west to California in search of an opportunity. He found one at the Ampex Corporation. Ampex was an American company that had pioneered early forms of audio and video recording equipment using magnetic tape. It was at this point that Bushnell was introduced to his first video game. Once he reached the San Francisco area, Bushnell became a fan of the Chinese board game Go and began frequenting various clubs that played the game. This introduced him to Jim Stein, who worked at Stanford University's Artificial Intelligence Lab, and who brought Bushnell to the computer lab there to try some of the games that existed for the machines at that time, which in 1969 included the now relatively famous Space War. Bushnell took to this game with intense interest, and the wheels began spinning in his head of ways that he could combine what he had played with everything he had learned up to that point in his life. Like Ralph Baer, Nolan Bushnell was on the path to fathering one of the branches of the video game industry, the arcade industry. Also like Baer, Bushnell turned to some of his fellow co-workers to turn his ideas into marketable reality. During his time at Ampex Corporation, Bushnell had established a strong friendship with a top-notch engineer at the company named Ted Dabney. Bushnell's vision would be to take the Space War game he had seen at Stanford and get it running on a microcomputer he had heard of called the Nova, made by Data General. Since this computer cost a much lower $4,000 in comparison to the PDP-1 machines that he saw at Stanford, he figured that they could attach it to a television monitor and package it as a kind of coin-operated electronic arcade game that would be profitable to market and to sell. However. Porting a version of the Space War game would require more than just Bushnell and Dabney's engineering knowledge, it would also require software programming expertise. For this, Bushnell recruited another friend and co-worker, Larry Bryan. Like with Ted Dabney, Bushnell had befriended Larry Bryan through their mutual love of board games like Go. In early 1970, all three men got together to collaborate on forming their own business, to produce Bushnell's idea for a coin-operated Space War game. Both Bushnell and Dabney initially deposited hundred dollars each into the bank account for the new company, and Brian suggested a name, Syzygy. Uh, the meaning of the word has to do with the convergence between three objects, such as celestial bodies, coming into alignment, like the earth, the sun, and the moon. By the summer of 1970, the group began to work on various responsibilities for the project. Larry Bryan started work on writing a spaceware program for the computer the group had selected to run the game, the Data General Nova computer. However, after a few weeks of working on the idea, he reported back to the group that the computer would not be able to handle the software to reliably play the game at a reasonable speed. In other words, the machine was not powerful enough. From this conclusion, the project appeared to be dead in the water to Bryan and Dabney. Bushnell, however, continued to rack his brain over the issue throughout the rest of the year. Bushnell studied the possibility of taking some of the tasks the computer would need to perform in the game, such as drawing the background stars or mapping the gravity models for the ships, and handing them off to specialized hardware that he would design that would relieve the underpowered computer from having to perform those calculations. This research and design work went on until January of 1971, when Bushnell reached out to Data General to finally order a Nova computer to test his design for the game. However, one of the employees at Data General pointed out a flaw in Bushnell's design that made the project impossible to work on the computer after all. It was at this point that Bushnell wondered if he could simply carry out the entire game through dedicated hardware circuits that could each handle different parts of the game while simultaneously cutting down on the cost of the machine compared to putting a relatively expensive microcomputer into it. At this point, Bushnell partnered up with Dabney again to continue working on the device, but Larry Bryant was no longer part of the project, since abandoning the microcomputer meant that his programming skills were no longer needed. From here, Dabney took over most of the design and engineering work, reportedly setting up shop in his newborn daughter's bedroom to work on the necessary hardware. As they worked out the specialized hardware to create their game, they also officially incorporated the company as Syzygy Inc with Bushnell and Dabney adding another $250 to their initial $100 investments in the company, starting the company with a grand total of $700 in the bank, which would be about $4,400 in 2019. Next, Bushnell and Dabney began searching for a business partner to finance the production of their space war machine. They both approached different higher-ups at Ampex to see if they could back the project, but were both turned down. Then, Bushnell learned of a coin-op manufacturer that might be interested in the game, Nutting Associates. By March of 1971, Bushnell had left his job at Ampex and joined Nutting Associates. Nutting had been the brainchild and creation of William Gilbert Nutting, established in 1966 as a vehicle to market and to sell coin-operated quiz games such as Computer Quiz and Sports World. By the time Bushnell pitched the company on his idea in early 1971, their standard coin-operated games were starting to become blasé. For Nutting Associates, Bushnell's idea of a space war type coin-operated game was exactly the kind of thing they knew they needed to develop at that time to maintain their relevance in the marketplace. It was with this understanding that Bushnell joined the company as the chief engineer under the condition that he would pursue regular Nutting Associates work during his regular work hours, but would be working on the space war project after hours and on weekends. This was done in order to keep Nunning Associates from ending up owning his work so that Syzygy could then license it back to them for production and distribution, with Syzygy making a 5% royalty from each cabinet sold. Bushnell began stripping down the original Space War game to something much simpler that could run on the transistor-logic-based device he was working on. The resulting game barely resembled the original Space War concept, and it was now a space game in which the player controlled a single ship, while two enemy ships fly around the screen attempting to shoot the player. Both the player and the computer-controlled chips have a score being tallied each time they manage to shoot each other, and at the end of 90 seconds of gameplay, the player is allowed to advance for another 90 seconds of play if they have the higher score. The more advanced functions of the original Space War, such as the hyperspace jump function, the sun in the center of the game map, and a second human player were all removed to make the game manageable on the hardware Bushnell was designing. Bushnell continued his work on this project during his off-hours at Nutting until later on in the year when he was able to convince Dabney to leave Apex to join Nutting Associates to help him complete the game. He also had some assistance, mainly in board assembly from another Ampex engineer named Steve Bristow, who would later become an early employee of their next company. However, at this point, almost the entirety of the engineering work in making Space War a reality on Bushnell's fully hardware based implementation of the game was carried out by Bushnell himself. Bushnell painstakingly laid out the necessary design of the board and its logic circuits. This included a couple of particularly brilliant engineering feats that he was very proud of. For one, Bushnell wanted the spaceships rendered on screen to be able to rotate in different directions, but laying out all the discrete diodes on the board needed to store all these different profiles of the ship would consume far too much memory and too much space on the board. Bushnell adapted to this by realizing that he could just map four different positions in the game program logic, and then invert the image either on their x- or y-axis to reverse the four animations to show the ship pointing in 16 possible directions. Bushnell took this a step further and actually laid out the diodes for the four base animations on the board in the shape of the actual ship animations themselves, which he said would allow for people servicing the machines to easily identify which diodes were malfunctioning based on their layout on the board corresponding with issues seen on the screen. Once Daphne joined the project, he put the finishing engineering touches on the device by creating the power supply for the device, the player controls, the coin accepting mechanism, the sound emitter, and the physical housing for the game. Bill Nutting designated the final name for the game, in line with Nutting's computer quiz games, dubbing the new creation Computer Space. So it was the first arcade video game was born. A deserving footnote should also be given to the one other known attempt to make an arcade adaptation of Space War at the time. Between 1968 and 1972, a Stanford student named Bill Pitts and his close friend Hugh Tuck created a full-blown version of the original Space War in an arcade-style cabinet. Pitts had been a student of early computer programming classes at Stanford in the 1960s before the university even had a degree in the field, graduating instead with the next closest thing, a statistics degree. It was at Stanford University that he had been exposed to space war at the computer lab, and had introduced his friend Hugh Tuck to the game as well. Tuck remarked at one point, while the two played the game, that if someone could simply attach a coin vending slot to the game, they would become very rich. Pitts carried this idea forward later on in 1971, when he worked at Lockheed as a programmer for the same kind of PDP computers he had used at Stanford. At the time, he was aware of a relatively new PDP-11 machine that DEC had released that year. Pitts thought this machine might have enough power and a small enough profile to make a marketable cabinet version of the space war game he had enjoyed in college. Pitts got to work with the help of Tuck in acquiring a PDP-11 with 8 kilobytes of memory, a display, a coin box taken from a jukebox, and surplus B-52 flight sticks to use as controllers. Pitts worked mainly on writing the program to play Space War on the PDP-11, while Tuck, a mechanical engineer, assembled the pieces into a working cabinet. In June 1971, they incorporated a company called Computer Recreations Incorporated, and changed the name of the game from Space War to Galaxy Game, in order to avoid association with the then-unpopular Vietnam War at the time. In early 1972, they installed this first prototype as a test market in a recreational room at the Treseder Union in the Stanford University campus, where it proved to be fairly popular, with the student population producing long lines to play the game, which they marketed at 10 cents a play or 25 cents for three games. Based on the popularity of the test version Pitts & Tuck designed, they made a second version, based in blue fiberglass housing and running two monitors simultaneously. This version was installed at a coffee house on campus at Stanford as well, and proved to be equally popular, sticking around until 1979, when it was decommissioned due to malfunctioning components. However, the original model was moved off campus to attempt to test the waters of the broader market. But this test did not meet with the same kind of reception as it did on campus, suggesting a divide between the younger college players that might have had some experience or exposure to computers, and the general public outside of the Stanford bubble that very likely had never seen a computer before. After the two test markets at Stanford University, the PDP-11 Galaxy Game Project never made it out to a wider market, and the commercial project ended there. However it was a commendable footnote in the development of the early arcade industry running in parallel to Bushnell and Syzygy's efforts, and being more advanced at that, considering that Pitts and Tuck had ported the full-blown version of Space War to their hardware, as opposed to Bushnell's significantly stripped-down computer space game. This fact presents an important lesson in the market realities of meshing technology with business. Both Pitts and Tuck, as well as Bushnell, were aware of each other's separate projects to bring a version of Space War to the public. However, Pitts & Tuck's version of the game reportedly cost around $20,000 to develop, whereas Bushnell's much stripped down implementation cost around $1,000, making it far likelier to be a profitable venture. It was this choice to sacrifice the purity of the game experience to produce something workable and marketable that set Bushnell apart from his would-be competitors as they regarded his computer space game to be a bastardized version of Space War, while their device was true to the original. This lesson is important to note as it will become a repeating theme throughout gaming history, and it's remarkable that it was observable right out of the gate. The greatest or most advanced technology does not automatically guarantee market success. In August 1971, Bushnell and the Syzygy group decided that a test run of the game was now necessary to assess its market potential and make sure that it worked correctly for game players. They initially chose a bar frequented by students of Stanford University, which would no doubt have significant overlap with fans and players of the Space War game that they were inspired by. Indeed, their predictions were correct, and the game appeared to be a hit at this location. However, a second location at a local pizza parlor proved to be almost the opposite in terms of reception. When placed amongst the regular public, who, again, likely had never seen a computer, let alone operated one, this proved to be beyond the grasp of average players that approached it, in an identical outcome to Pitt's and Tuck's experience test marketing their own space war game. Nevertheless, Syzygy and Nutting Associates went ahead and began to pitch the game to possible game distributors. In October, the group attended the Music Operators of America trade show, and in November, the International Association of Amusement, Parks, and Attractions show to show the device off to prospective customers. The prototype wooden cabinets made by Dabney to put the game up on local test markets were replaced by very futuristic-looking curved fiberglass bodies that the game is more well known for being featured in today, with a control panel on a separate pedestal from the television screen, which is recessed on a higher platform facing the controls. It was also printed in different colors, such as red, blue, yellow, and white. This showing garnered some modest interest from showgoers, as many were not exactly sure what to make of the first computer-based video arcade game. The orders taken at the trade show were likely in the dozens. Still, Nutting found the reception to be good enough to warrant ordering a production run of roughly some 1,000 to 1,500 machines. They were ordered and began shipping in December of 1971, making Computer Space the very first mass-produced commercial video game. While computer space proved to be a minor success and a noteworthy start to an up-and-coming industry, it was not the runaway smash hit that would be needed to vault video games into the forefront of popular culture and consumer consciousness. That inspiration would come from what Bushnell observed next in May of 1972, at a Magnavox demonstration booth, the point at which our two protagonists' paths cross. Over the summer of 1972, Magnavox was starting the marketing campaign for its Odyssey home game console, with various promotional and sales events across the United States. It was at one of these events that none other than Nolan Bushnell was recorded as signing the guestbook and playing several of the games on display for the Odyssey console. Bushnell would later testify under oath that amongst these games was the ping pong table tennis game that came packaged with the Odyssey. At this time, Bushnell and his partners at Syzygy were coming off the production run of Computer Space they had produced in conjunction with Nutting Associates. While Computer Space had proved to be a modest success at best, Bushnell and company were confident and determined that they were on the right track in pursuing a commercial avenue for video games. So it was that when he viewed the games for the Odyssey, Bushnell was not only sure that the video game market would become a legitimate business, but he also gained distinct inspiration for a future game from Bayer's ping pong game on the Odyssey. It was just a few weeks later, on June 9, 1972, that Syzygy would file articles of incorporation to continue operating as Atari Incorporated, with Bushnell, Dabney, and their wives operating as the first company directors. Also in that month, they would hire an electrical engineer named Al Alcorn, who became the third owner of the company, sign a contract with the arcade giant Bally Manufacturing, and by the end of the month, on June 27th, officially submit their paperwork with the state of California to christen their new and famous Atari Incorporated into the history books. The name itself derives from Bushnell and Dabney's favorite board game, Go, referring to a position in the game at which a player is in danger of being overtaken by their opponent, similar to the phrase check in a game of chess. The contract Atari signed with Bally specified that the outfit would provide the arcade manufacturer with the design for two games within six months. One would be a type of pinball game, while the other would be a video arcade game to be determined by Atari. Initially, Bushnell thought a driving game would be an appropriate idea for Atari's first arcade game, but his experience with the Odyssey had given him an inkling of another idea. He assigned Al Alcorn, his newest engineer, the task of making a ping pong game similar to what he had seen on the Odyssey. Equipped with only Bushnell's ideas and a sketch out of what the game and hardware might look like, Alcorn got to work immediately, under the impression that he was working on a major project for Atari's big contract with General Electric. Only issue with that was that Bushnell had lied in telling the new engineer that there was any such contract with GE. In fact, Bushnell was just tasking him with a starting project to gauge his abilities, and motivating him to work hard on it with the fiction of being on the line with a big contract. Alcorn's design skills became very evident when he returned the product to Bushnell within a few weeks. He had simplified the initial idea of ping pong taken from the Odyssey, which featured two free-moving dots able to traverse the screen in all directions, with two lines, each locked to their respective side of the screen, moving only up and down. This dramatically simplified the control and made it possible to play the game one-handed by twisting a single dial needed to move these digital bars up and down on either side of the screen. He also made the top and bottom of the screen work similar to the bumpers in a bowling alley. They would deflect the ball back into the playfield rather than falling out of bounds off the screen, as the Odyssey game had done in order to remain true to a real-life game of ping-pong. He also made the player's bars capable of deflecting the ball at different angles depending at which part of the bar the ball struck, determining what angle the ball would bounce back at the opposing player. This, too, was different than the Odyssey Original, which gave players another knob on the controller to control the spin they put on the ball when they hit it. Finally, Alcorn added scorekeeping numbers onto the screen, and built in the game's signature thonk sound whenever the ball was struck, giving the game a large bit of its character and familiarity, and also improving on the Odyssey Original, which had no on-screen scorekeeping and no sound. That being said, Alcorn did not have access to and did not play the Odyssey ping-pong game. He was merely going off of Bushnell's impressions of the game and suggestions for designing a similar product. When Alcorn presented his finished project to Bushnell, he was met with surprised pleasure at the result. After the Atari team found the game to be enough fun, they themselves were stuck playing it for hours, Bushnell attempted to convince Bally to accept it as one of their two contract games, but Bally was not interested in this Pong game, as Bushnell had named it. Instead, the Atari group decided to test market the game themselves, placing a test unit at Andy Capps, a local working-class bar in Sunnyvale, California, near the company headquarters. Within a day or two of deploying the game, Al Alcorn received a frantic call from Andy Caps that the game had broken down and they wanted him to rush over to fix the game, as it was proving to be quite popular so far. Once he arrived, he found the issue was both simple and wonderful. The coin box, used to store the money players paid to try the game, had filled up, overflowed, and jammed the machine's coin entry mechanism. When he opened the machine, the money reportedly spilled out onto the floor, A fitting visual sign of the prospective gold mine Atari had on its hands. With this impending financial success staring him in the face, Bushnell made a risky decision to have Atari attempt to manufacture the Pong cabinets on its own and market them directly to consumers. With the company's current money on hand, they could finance the production of 12 cabinets and soon managed to secure a line of credit for $50,000 from Wells Fargo to prepare to take orders for new machines. At the time, Magnavox was in the last leg of its journey to bring Ralph Bayer's Brown Box, now known as the Odyssey, home to consumers. Shortly after unveiling the Odyssey and its games to the Magnavox distribution and sales network, the company officially unveiled the product at a staged press event in New York City in late May, where Baer himself was in attendance. Soon, print advertisements for the device began to sprout up in local papers and advertisements that invited interested consumers to come and see Odyssey in advance of its impending release. The fall of 1972 would be the very first launch season in video game history as two different sides of the industry simultaneously went before American audiences and the financial rubber finally hit the road. In September 1972, Magnavox officially released the Odyssey home console for sale in the United States and in December 1972, Atari released Pong to arcades nationwide. With that, the first generation of consumer video games began and the video game industry was born. In our next episode, we will dive into this first generation of commercial video games and see how Magnavox and Atari provided the North Star for countless companies to enter the industry and countless consumers to be introduced to video games for the first time, not just in America, but all over the world. At the end of this episode, I'd like to stop for a moment and reiterate a point I made at the beginning. Since this show is about history, it contains the fruits of a great deal of research. The collecting and telling of history is and always has been a collaborative project, so while I certainly acknowledge, embrace, and enjoy my job in gathering, organizing, distilling, and presenting this history, I would be sorely remiss if I did not highlight the deep digging and research that is done by a nascent category of video game archivists, researchers, preservationists, and historians. Many of the events described here took place before I was alive, and sadly some of the people involved are no longer living to tell their stories. You and I are only able to know these stories and understand where this history comes from thanks to the usually thankless efforts of people that recognize that time is fleeting, that metals corrode, and that papers are so often lost, and that we must do what we can to capture the past as best as we can in order to learn from it for the future. The show notes to this and every show will contain links to the sources behind my research for these episodes. I highly encourage you to take a look, to dive deeper into the topic if it interests you, and to show your appreciation and support to the modern-day historians who dig through newspaper archives, interview long-forgotten programmers, and save aging hardware from oblivion. In the modern 21st century gaming landscape, as digital forms of distribution and storage overtake the physical, it becomes more important going forward than it ever has in the past that more and more people understand that each game they download is a possible historical artifact in the making. Preservation and longevity should be given greater priority amongst the consumer public and the companies and individuals responsible for creating this content. The Film Foundation A nonprofit dedicated to the preservation of film estimates that 50% of American films made before 1950 are lost forever, and that over 90% of films made before 1929 suffer the same fate. It would be a historical and cultural tragedy to let another medium of human expression fall into such a desperate state. I hope I can make the case to you, in this series, to care more about history and preservation in this regard. I hope this look into gaming history has been enjoyable and informational. Thank you for listening.